Hello, and thank you for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. And today I'm delighted to be joined by the Professor of Infectious Diseases, Public Health, Preventative Medicine, Ophthalmology from the Oregon Health and Science University of the USA. He's also a steering committee member of CSF, Professor Kevin Winthrop. Welcome, Kevin, and thank you so much for giving up your time. We greatly appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, Peter. Uh, great to see you and great to talk with you again. Okay, so we uh, are talking about a recent paper that you published in the Annals of Rheumatic Diseases, and it's a paper that's looking at a fairly practical and common clinical issue now, and that is the most recent data on the incidence of risk factors of zoster in patients in RA who are receiving upadacitinib. We were talking in a prior podcast about the FDA decision the jack market, and how it's been affected by oral surveillance. UPA at the 15 milligram dose is about the last jack standing in the US at a, at a decent dose. What's the market like for jacks in the US at the moment? <laughs> Very commonly used here in the monotherapy market. Yeah, I mean, obviously the goal is to be the last jack standing, Peter. So <laughs> <laughs> Then you hit the jackpot. Huh? Yeah, maybe UPA's doing that. I don't know. I mean... I obviously Barry being at a lower, uh, a less than, you know, a less than ideal therapeutic dose. So it hasn't been a lot of barrier use here um, in the U.S. Uh, so, you know, I, I think there has been a lot of uptake of UPA. I think the oral surveillance data may, may be slowing that down. Um, and I, I certainly think practicing rheumatologists in wake of the FDA label change are, are, you know, looking at who they have on jacks now, but but particularly new patients coming in and, and thinking about maybe you know using it in younger individuals or people who are lacking some of the comorbidities that we're seeing in the oral surveillance data. So I do think it's a pre affecting practice. I know my GI friends who are all using TOFA at 10 milligrams are, are freaking out about it uh, because, because that's the dose they use. And you know that's the dose where you know most of the risk from oral surveillance was really seen at. So um, so that's that. So how did you do the study? Tell us about the select program. Sure. This was, uh, this, was, this was fun to do. I mean, it is the RA clinical trial program or development program for UPA. Took place over many years. Uh, and this was just looking basically at all the phase three data. I think there were six phase three trials, if I remember right. Um, all collapsed and it included people on methotrexate alone and, and a compared, direct comparator with adalimumab plus methotrexate. And then there were two UPA doses, you know, the 15, which was approved in the 30, which had a real high rate of adverse events, a number of different adverse events. So the, the risk benefit wasn't there for, for 30. And so it did not go forward. So 15 was the one that went forward. Uh, and so the nice thing about analysis is that there, there's a decent amount of person years of exposure. And we're, we did have, you know, a lot of person years of exposure at those comparator groups, which was nice. Um, and we're able to, to look at rates over the long term of, of the usual, the, you know, the AESIs, adverse events of special interests. Okay. And you did see a nice dose response for adverse, for zoster anyway, didn't you? Yeah. I mean, opportunistic infection, serious infection, zoster. Yeah. I mean, the, the 30 milligram hit it out of the park pretty much on all those, but Whereas the 15 milligram was, you know, uh, so for zosters, it behaved like we thought it would. It was, you know, two to three fold higher than, than what we saw with methotrexate or adalimumab. 
for serious infection, it also performed how we would think it would. Uh, it actually, similar to what was seen in oral surveillance and every other jack analyses, it it looked just like the TNF blocker. The rates were around you know three or two and a half per hundred patient years, and kind of came in there just like all the other jacks in the TNF blocker. So it looked very similar with serious infection. Um, you know, and maybe some of these other you know outcomes we can talk about as well. But but the zoster really hit the mark, and uh, you know. The, the 30 again was was really quite high. I think it was five times higher in the 30 group as compared to adalimumab. So, so no one was excited. And very few people vaccinated in the study. Yeah, I think you know vaccine history was collected as best as it could. I'm sure it was under collected, under reported. But um, but you know what we found was yes, a very low percent that had been vaccinated. Uh, at least that's what we recognized. So, what's the vax rate like in the US? And can you just explain for the audience a little the difference between Zostavax and Shindrix? Yeah, so Zostavax is still being used in quite a few places around the world. Shindrix is still, you know, not on the market in a number of countries. You know, Zostavax, of course, is the live vaccine. Shindrix is a subunit, not non-live vaccine, highly rejuvenated. Um, you know, Zostavax works. It provides probably a couple of years of immunity. We, Jeff Curtis and I just published a study where we, actually had given, you know, 617 people Zosfax versus placebo. And these were patients on TNF blockers with methotrexate and or prednisone. Um, and not one of them had any, you know, shingles from the vaccine at all. So we, we proved that it was safe to go ahead and give people on at least TNF blockers, methotrexate and prednisone. So, so there are places in the world where that's, that's kind of a nice bridging strategy to, you know, vaccinate someone now and then, you know, wait till you get access to Shingrix. In the parts of the world where we've got Shingrix, you know, there's, there's still very little data. We're doing a large study looking at the safety immunogenicity of the vaccine and efficacy of the vaccine in patients who are on JAKs and who are on TNF blockers. So that, you know, I'll probably, I'll have some more definitive data for you in a year or two, but for right now, you can expect that it will provide uh, some level of protection, probably to a greater extent than Zostavax. Um, and, you know, I, I think you can, you can use it. I, I do know people are using it. I don't know what our coverage in the U.S. is. I mean, like four or five years ago or something like that, six years ago, when Jeff and I started getting into this because of all the jacks, you know, we did some population-based work and it was really low. It was like 4% of RA patients had been vaccinated. So I, I know it's much higher now, but I doubt it's, I, I doubt it's north of 20%. Um, I think okay. it's still a huge, huge unmet need. So, but I, I could be wrong, but it, it's definitely uh, not the majority of patients. Do you get any feel that the vax can flare rheumatoid, which is one of the concerns of uh, the rheumatology community? Yeah, actually, I actually had a patient today uh, where that happened. Um, you know, it definitely happens that the best analysis was published at a Cleveland Clinic. And, um, you know, there's been a couple like kind of open label looks at that or just observational study looks at that. And um, and really the the one that looked most closely was this Cleveland Clinic analysis. And they did see an increased flare, particularly with people with inflammatory arthritis. And it, it was mainly linked to people who had higher disease activity at baseline or at the time of vaccination. So I, I do, and that makes sense, right? If they're more in remission or an LDA, they're, they're less likely to have a flare. So, um, so I think people with stable disease, you know, it's probably unexpected to, to get a flare, but you do see this increased risk, particularly people who are a bit more active at baseline.
Mind you, I'm seeing all these people flaring after their COVID vax too. About seven to 10 days later, I've seen RA, PSA, lupus, DMR, and on Monday, a new giant cell arteritis seven days after a COVID vax. Yeah. Coincidence yeah. or who knows? Yeah, I mean, I you know, from where that's been reported, the you know, the rates of flare seem probably not above baseline. Uh, it's hard for me to believe because I'm a guy who had his gout flare after his first vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> but but I, I suspect there is a small increased risk of flare, but you know, it's manageable and um yeah, it so, has to be done. Yeah. Um so tell us the risk factors for Zoster from this study. Yeah, the cool thing about this analysis, I, I think, and the reason why I hopefully convinced uh, ARD to publish it was it was the first multivariate analysis of this question in JAX that looked at the history of Zoster as a risk factor. We, did, we didn't do that with TOFA. We didn't do that with Barry, if I recall. I just don't think we had that data. And in this program, it was collected at time of entry to the studies. And it turned out to be the strongest risk factor for getting zoster. I mean, that and, and being in Asia, which we already knew is a risk factor with JAX uh, from, from all the other programs. So, um, you know, it's counterintuitive. You know, I think I, I was saying before that, that uh, you know, if you, if you have an episode of shingles, you should be boosting your immunity. You should be essentially vaccinating yourself and protecting yourself from future episodes. But there is this group of people uh, in these JAK development programs where that doesn't occur, they actually have recurrent zoster. It's about three or 4% in each program where you see this. Um, so, so there's definitely a group of people that behave uh, different than the general population where, where if you have an episode of shingles, you really are very unlikely to have another one in your lifetime. Um, so there's something, I, I mean, my personal opinion is there's probably several ways to get shingles. You know, there's a deficiency uh, in NK cells or there's in a deficiency in your, you know, CD4, you know, cell mediated immunity. And in other cases, maybe it's just simply a, uh, a jack signaling defect and interferon signaling defect, you know, very locally that causes it. So I, I think, I, I think there's probably different reasons why some of these patients develop shingles and some don't in these in these programs. So I, I would love to get my hands on these people with recurrent zoster. There, there's got to be, that's a nice group to study and do some sort of nested case control analysis, you know, comparing them. They, they just, they must just behave differently. So, you know, we're doing this big vaccine study I mentioned to you. So we're, we're hopefully, we're going to be giving people on Jack Shingrix and we're hopefully going to see, um, you know, we'll, we'll find out if there's some group of people that has a differential uh, immune response to the vaccine or not. Have you got a hypothesis for the Asian risk? You know, um, I, I, yeah, I do have I, several hypotheses. So there was a genetic look at that, that, you know, some SNPs that were overrepresented in that region that might explain just a tiny bit of that increased risk, maybe like 12 or 15% of it. I think there's also probably a, uh, uh, differential detection there as compared to other places in the world. I think probably people are more likely to report it and, and, and see it and go to the doctor to, or nurse to go get it evaluated. Um, I also think that it might be a body weight issue that, that there is greater bioavailability bio and therefore activity of some of the JAK inhibitors in smaller individuals, you know, less, less weighted individuals. And I think that may, you know, they're essentially having a more, a more effective or higher dose effectively. 
Uh, and so that may explain some of the higher risk too. And, and we, you know, we modeled that a few times. Uh, and I remember one model with TOFA, that was definitely there. It wasn't BMI, it was weight. Um, so it made me always think that this could be an issue with some of the other jacks. And I, I don't, I think we modeled that in this one. I don't, I think, oh no, you know, we modeled BMI if I remember right. So BMI is probably not the right thing to, to model. It's probably weight if, if you want to explore that idea. Yeah, that's actually we'll have to go back to select sunrise and see what the 7.5 milligram dose had as far as Oster rate, but the probably the numbers are too small. You publish a lovely paper with TOFA. If you take away methotrexate and prednisone, you drop the risk significantly. Barry didn't seem to fit that model very as well. And with UPA, steroids didn't seem to make a difference. What's your thoughts about concomitant conventional DMARDs and background prednisone, which yeah. didn't seem to be a risk here? Yeah, it's interesting, Peter. I mean, I so with the TOFA data, eventually with maturation of that data and more statistical power, we, are, we were able to separate out the effects of steroids from methotrexate. And it, it looked like the methotrexate really wasn't a bad actor. Um, and wasn't really contributing independently, but but we did see this residual, very strong independent risk with steroids, no question. And I that is odd with this analysis and the multivariate analysis. We just simply did not see that as a risk factor with UPA. Um, and I can't explain why, other than you know, as an epidemiologist, when I see these things, I wonder if you know, I wonder if there's no additive risk because patients are already at such a high risk due to other factors like being in Asia or or you know, being on a jack inhibitor that you're just not seeing additional risk with with other known risk factors. But that would just be a guess. Um, I really, I really, in my heart of heart, believe that steroids uh, increase the risk of zosters simply because we've seen it in so many studies, and it makes sense, you know, physiologically. So, um, but but interesting, we just we just didn't see it here. So, and the other thing that was surprised to me that of the patients who had zoster during a UPA trial. 6% and 9% at the 15 and the 30 had a recurrent attack of zoster in the follow-up time, usually after one to two years. That would be most unusual, wouldn't it? Yeah, this kind of gets to what I was saying before. I mean, that recurrent, those that group of people with recurrent zoster, something different about them. They, they should be building their immunity and protecting themselves from additional episodes, but that's not what's happening with that group. So no. very interesting. And, you know, just back to your last question too. I mean, you know, if you look at our multivariate analysis, we know that age is a risk factor, right? But if you look at age in the multivariate analysis, it, it wasn't even, a, it was a risk factor for the 15 milligram dose, but it wasn't for the 30. The, the greater than 65 versus less than 50 wasn't even a risk if you were on 30. And my interpretation of that would be similar to what I just told you is that they were all at such high risk on 30 that the age really didn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, I mean, that that's kind of how I, I wonder about, you know, the steroid uh, question. Yeah, maybe there's just not enough additional risk to add when you're already at a high enough level. I don't know. That would be my guess. So for the practicing clinician, what do you recommend as zoster management uh, in RA starting a jack? And what do you do with COVID vax people on a jack? Yeah, I mean, obviously the lowest dose possible. So with UPA, I mean, you only have 15 milligrams, so that's easy. Um, and I, I do recommend trying to get rid of prednisone if you can. 
Um, and then, you know, you know, vaccination, either if they're already on the jack, I would vaccinate them with Shingrix or send them to us for our study because that's what we're going to do. <laughs> I mean, you know, the, the, the question is, uh, and it's important we do the study because we have to know how well this vaccine works in this setting because it may be that people need boosters, right? I mean, this is what we're seeing with COVID vaccine. Certain groups of people are definitely not getting the types of responses we want them to have and they, they do need boosters. Um, so we, we got to figure that out with Shingrix. You know, I guess one question would be, should you be holding the JAK inhibitor at the time of vaccination? We certainly have toyed around that uh, issue with, with the COVID vaccines. I mean, some people are doing that here. I don't know about you guys. Is that something people are doing or? Well, only because the ACR has recommended you stop a JAK for five days and it's very hard to fly in the face of that kind of recommendation. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's a guess based on what we've seen in some other studies. Uh, you know, we're, we're doing a study where we're actually experimentally doing that to see if it makes a difference. And there's other people doing that same study, I think. So, so I think we'll have an answer. I, I suspect it will help if you stop a jack for probably two weeks. I'm not sure. I just think one week might help, but two weeks would probably be better based on all the data I know. But yeah, um, it's, you know, it's whether tricky it makes to even Clinically, though, that's another question. Yeah. It's tricky to even know what the antibody levels mean. Is there a level you have to reach to be protected or has it got nothing to do with level? Right. So that's that's the money question, right? Even if you drop levels by 50 percent, doesn't even matter because maybe you're all still above the protective level anyway. Yeah. Or maybe you're all below the protective level anyway. <laughs> And it doesn't matter. So, I mean, that, you know, it's interesting. The couple Zostavax trials we did in people, you know, pre-starting TOFA, I mean, we did not see, they were small trials. They weren't powered to, to, to look at efficacy. But the rates that we saw in the trial I did and the, the other trial that was published, I was not involved with. But in both experiences, I mean, we didn't see any hint of protection. Um, so, so it's interesting. I mean, Shingrix is, is a more robust vaccine and should offer greater protection, but, but we'll have to see what the studies show. Okay, thank you so much. Um, we, the JAKs are here to stay. We've got to learn how to manage them better, particularly in the monotherapy market. We can't get tocilizumab for love or money here because it's all being used for COVID. Yeah. And we won't get a new supply to next February, March. And we haven't got cerulean so we we need a monotherapy agent because that's up to a third of our patients. So we got to learn how to use them well. A take-home message from your Zoster study? Yeah, I think the take-home would be uh, you know expect Zoster. Uh, it, it's it's likely to occur at least you know in someone who's been on drug for a few years, um, but. You know, if they have other risk factors, if they've had Zoster before, they're more at risk, which again is counterintuitive, but that's the deal. And I think that just is a recognition of, of people who are, uh, you know, immunosuppressed or at least immunosuppressed in, in some particular pathway or way that allows them to, to have Zoster again. So, I mean, I think, you know, there's not much you can do other than, you know, there's no tests, there's no real screening for who's at risk. So I think, you know, vaccinating before Jack start is ideal. Um, if you have, all you have is Zostavax, use it. If you have Shingrix, I'd use that preferentially. Um, and if they're already on a Jack, I, I would just go ahead and give them Shingrix, whether you stop the Jack or not. I don't know if that's necessary. I, I suspect it's probably not necessary, but uh, I'll have an answer for you in a, a year or two.
on that one. <laughs> so thanks again, Kevin, for your time. We greatly appreciate it. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to the CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or other podcast media and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Kevin, for your time and trouble. We appreciate yeah. it. Thank you, Peter. Take care. Happy holidays. All the best. Thank you.